Hi everyone, my name is Gates. And I'm Kelsey. And welcome to Killer Country. I forgot, Just forgot, I forgot the intro. <laughs> done this like nine times already yeah this is number 11 actually oh 11 already actually it might be 12 oh my gosh i I can't believe that we've been recording this long it i know what's been going on with your week how have things been going just making it to christmas that's i feel like we're so close to the end of the year everything hits all at the same time yes i starred in a hollywood produced video Oh, this week or actually end of last week. Yep. My company, my company put together a like Christmas video for all of our different locations and we're a a worldwide company. So we have like locations in Germany and Ukraine that all like chipped in for this video as well. And then we sent all of our little recordings to a Hollywood producer in California who literally made us a video. So oh, this is so cool. I can't wait to see, uh, it. No. Can I see it. Or is it just within your company? This, that season? Uh, it's just internal, but I can send it to you. I screen, I screen recorded it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And how is that yeah. new puppy getting along? Good. We are on day three of no accidents. Knock on wood. Oh. I know. Yeah. Very she nice. and it was Lila's birthday yesterday. So they played all day today mm-hmm. and Matthew took them outside for a couple hours and they played hard. Like when Bria is big enough to play, play, they are going to, they will not stop. It's going to be all out warfare at the nine house. Yes. They're just going to be knocking and stuff. Kind of like my boys. Yep. (laughs) Oh, I was thinking about something the other day. I just think it is so fitting how you have two girl dogs and you are pregnant with a girl and I have two boy dogs and I'm pregnant with a boy. I probably already talked about this, but I feel like I just now noticed that. What is happening in the true crime world? Anything crazy? Anything crazy going on? I meant to. No, we just had tornadoes. I mean, the South was havoc was wrecked on the South. Yeah. Um, Midwest too. I I think it went from Missouri to Arkansas to Tennessee and Kentucky, maybe. Yeah, and then I was talking to my mom tonight, and she's in Minnesota, like northern Minnesota, and where they have like feet of snow on the ground already and they are under tornado watches oh guys sorry if we sound super glitchy at certain points my husband forgot to charge his gaming headset and that's what i use because i'm too cheap to buy a regular headset for my podcast (laughs) well to be fair we are still recording remotely because that's just the way life crumbles sometimes and we don't actually know if we're gonna need headphones when we're back together so It's it's a tactical decision. <laughs> a tactical decision. Did you hear that tactical? <laughs> His nub is going crazy right now. <laughs> He's like, they're talking about me. Yes. All right. Well, where are you taking us in Idaho? I am taking us to, and I hope I'm saying this right, Coeur d'Alene. Oh, Coeur d'Alene. It sounds like it's French. Coeur it d'Alene. does. And it's spelled that way as well. Oh. It is spelled. Oh, oh, oh. 
C-O-E-U-R-D apostrophe A-L-E-N-E. I think it's French. I'm saying I'm calling it. Yes, it is. The name Cordeline was yes. given to the tribe in the late 18th or early 19th century by French traders and trappers. In French, it means heart of the all, A-W-L, owl. <laughs> I don't know what that word is. Referring to the sharpness of the trading skills exhibited by tribal members in their dealings with visitors. Very nice. Very, very cool. Yes. So that is where we are traveling today. We get to talk about um, the human trash can named Joseph Edward Duncan III. I don't recognize his name. I'm surprised that I didn't recognize his name as well. I feel like in Idaho, it was a little difficult for us to pick a case. Or at least for me, I don't know how difficult it was for you to find something. It was... It was, it was like there are five main things that happened in Idaho, and anything out of those five main things have very little information. I was able to find quite a bit, but Idaho is one of those places, and like, I'm sorry to all the Idahoans, but you just don't hear about Idaho. No, and there are less than two million people living in the entire state. Yeah, that's wild. When well, I think of Idaho, have you seen the movie The House, um, the House Bunny? Yes. It's where she's like, she becomes, she's a playboy bunny and she becomes the house mom for like a band of misfits sorority. Yes. There's that one girl, she's from Idaho and <laughs> she's like turning them into like these girly girls. And she just says, I'm just going to go back to my trailer park in Idaho. <laughs> she says it just like that. Oh. It's, it's so funny. I just remember uh, we would always like, make fun of states names or like uh, town names growing up so we can remember them. So um, like we were traveling through um, Albuquerque one day and my dad went Albuquerque, you're the turkey. And uh, in high school, or maybe it was middle school, I remember kids going Idaho, Idaho. So our case is taking place in Coeur d'Alene in 2005. In 2005, okay. the population was 39,762 people, and now it's jumped up quite a bit. It's now at 54,882 hmm. people in the area. So okay. definitely increased a little bit in about 15 years, but we're not going to start in 2005. We're going to just go back. And so one of my favorite podcasts to listen to is Morbid. That's mm-hmm. literally like, my go-to podcast. Yep. Ash and Elena are, are basically just my best friends. Yep. I was in an accident uh, a couple, I guess about a, over a year ago now. And I was listening to the podcast. And whenever <laughs> I was going through the, um, like the interview with my insurance company, mm-hmm. he was like, what were you doing at the time of the accident? I was like, I was literally stopped at a stoplight <laughs> listening to a podcast. I was like, and I said something about how these girls were my best friends and blah, blah, blah. He's like, oh, I hope you and your friends are okay. You're like, mm. like I mean, they're okay, but I'm not. <laughs> I had like ligaments torn and everything in my shoulder. Dang. Like it was just. Ugh, was I nice. like to listen to Morbid whenever I'm at work and I have to have my earbuds in because not yeah. everybody at work is um, into true crime, but. Uh-huh. This today I was listening to their most recent episode and I was cackling like 
I'm literally sitting in my office cackling, laughing so hard. My boss came and we share a wall and my boss came and she's like, are you good? (laughs) Yeah, I'm good. Oh my gosh. I'm actually a little behind. So I'm on part one of that. Like of the most recent. Yes. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I've never heard of that case before. And they talk about it, how it's like this huge case. So I'm excited to hear a little bit more about it. Yeah, it was but, it's very good. Yes. And we are talking about Joseph Edward Duncan III. I feel like anyone who goes by all three names is a, usually it's, it's a bad sign. <laughs> usually so. Yes. So this guy's nickname was Jet and it came from the J and Joseph, the mm-hmm. E from Edward and T from the ta- from the fact that he was the third. Oh, so Jet. I have a little um, cousin, I think she is, and her, it's all boys, and she was the first girl, and they're all Charles, and so they named her Charles the fourth, but they call her Ivy, because the oh. Roman numerals is IV. Oh, I love that. Yeah, so her legal name is Charles, but uh, yeah, Ivy, I think it's adorable. All right, we're. The- I just keep taking lots of detours. Anyway, Cordeline. <laughs> Cordeline. So we are actually starting in Tacoma, Washington. Okay. And you guys know how I feel about. You guys know how I feel about a lot of things, but I do not think that uh, people should get to go by their nicknames if they are a piece of trash. So oh, we are calling him there. Joseph the entire time. He does not get to go by Jet. So Joseph no. <laughs> Joseph Edward Duncan the third was born on February 25th, 1963 in Tacoma, Washington. So his father was in the military and he was deployed very often. He was not around a lot in their childhood. And their mother was incredibly religious. She attended every single church service. Like you would not see her like missing church. Like if she missed church, something was wrong. And not that like being incredibly religious is a bad thing because my mother works at a church like she's a minister at a church they go to church every single service it's not a bad thing to be incredibly religious but this was like tenfold Mm, to the nth degree yes absolutely now joseph edward duncan had four other siblings and he was the second youngest of them all And during his childhood, one thing that his mom did do, aside from attend church and beat the shit out of them, was she ranted about how much she despised men and talked about how worthless men were. Oh, my. Hearing some of the things that she ranted about, it made me think that she was ranting because her husband wasn't around. But it wasn't that he was choosing to not be around. Right. He literally deployed, like, He was not a deadbeat father. He was doing his freaking job. Right. And another. Poor her. Yeah. Poor her. She sounds incredibly narcissistic. Mm -hmm. She would also get angry because they would move around often. Like that's another thing that she would rant and rave about. But it's like you married a man in the military. Right. Do you expect to be stationary? No. He's literally. No. And what? She gets to stay at home and go to church. And, which is important to her while he's out there literally risking his life. Yeah. So yeah, have but some respect. 
Yeah, she's just pissed that her husband left her alone to raise their five kids. And again, five kids. Why would you? It's have a choice, people. Angry, <laughs> There's only one know. way to get pregnant. One way to get pregnant: sex ed with Gates and Kelsey. <laughs> yeah, um, she was pissed at her husband for working a job and leaving her alone with the five kids. So she took it out on her children. Uh, she would beat her kids mercilessly because of how angry she was at life and her husband. And it's said that when she would beat Joseph, he would just passively take all of her beatings, which, I mean, I don't know what type of child wouldn't take a beating, like, mm-hmm. without fighting back, especially one so young. Right. But when, like, she was done beating him, he would just kind of slink back to his room whimpering because it was yeah. said that if any of the kids ever fought back during their beatings, it would just be even worse. Aww. And same thing, they were taught not to cry because if they cried, it would just bring on more beating. So literally, there was no winning. And like I brought up Morbid earlier, because what I was planning on saying before we got distracted was I like what they say, like you can feel sorry for the child mm-hmm. that this person was, but you do not feel sorry for the monster he becomes. No. I mean, there's a there's a point in your life where like, you start being in control of some of that stuff. And whether you learn right or wrong or not, you still know. Like, you still know you don't murder people. Your friends don't go around murdering people. So, just saying. You know, you would think you would know that, but this guy has had a criminal career since the time he was 15. Well, he started young. He did. In 1978, he lured in all of these, or I should say, Most of these victims are unnamed because of their age. So in 1978, he lured an unnamed nine-year-old boy and raped him at gunpoint. And this is his first known sex crime. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So he was not even- He's just a kid himself. Yes. Like, how would you even know to do something like that? I have no idea. So the next year in 1979, he was caught driving a stolen car and all of this, or I shouldn't say all of this, but um, driving that stolen car landed him at a rehabilitation camp for boys where he was given a therapist to help him work through his problems. Now this, this, this next part just kind of floored me. So in these sessions with his therapist, he told his therapist that he had bound and assaulted at least six boys, six young boys. Oh my gosh. And he had raped approximately 13 more young boys. So that's 19 people that he assaulted all by the time that he turned 16. Jeez. And somehow, after letting his therapist know all of this stuff, he was released a few months later. Like, wow. how, did, how did none of this raise any red flags? The following year in 1980, he stole a ton of guns from one of his neighbors. And later he abducted an unnamed 14 year old boy that he raped and sodomized while holding him at gunpoint. Like he just started so young, like, but they should have known whenever he went to that rehabilitation camp, mm-hmm. he couldn't be rehabilitated. Right. And it kept him longer than just that time. Or sent him back. Yes. Because of the gun theft, the um, sodomization, and the rape of the 14-year-old boy, he was arrested, tried in court, and he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Okay. After 14 years of his 
of his prison sentence in 1994, he was paroled. Two years later, in 1996, he violated his parole because he was found in possession of marijuana and a firearm, and he was sent back to prison. Um, he was paroled just a month later after being sent to prison, and he was given some extra conditions for his parole. One of the main conditions was that he was not allowed to interact with minors, which... Rightfully I mean, so. Yes. Should be an obvious one. On April 2nd, 1997, during his parole... He abducted, molested, and murdered a 10-year-old boy named Anthony Michael Martinez from Idaho, California. No, I'm sorry. Not Idaho. Indio, California. From Idaho, California. From Idaho, California, my friends. <laughs> Joseph was shortly sent back to prison for once again violating his parole because he stole his girlfriend's car and traveled out of state to his, his, his sister's house in Kansas City, Missouri. He stayed there. He stayed in prison until his release in July of 2000. That's when his 20 years were up. After he was let out of prison for serving his 20 years, he would then move to Fargo, North Dakota. On July 3rd, 2004, Joseph molested an unnamed young boy at the Detroit Lakes, Minnesota playground. And he tried. No, don't come to Minnesota. You're not welcome. <laughs> of course, he's not welcome. Okay, so, um, yeah, so he went to Minnesota, and he tried to do the same thing to the unnamed boy's friend, which luckily he did not get the chance to do that to him. Good. Joseph once again was arrested and charged in March 2005, and unfortunately for us, the story continues because one of his acquaintances helped him post bail, and he was released from custody on April 5th, 2000. After he was released, he stopped at Walmart to get night vision goggles and a video camera. You can buy night vision goggles at Walmart? Uh, apparently you can in Minnesota. <laughs> I feel like you should know this. I don't know about that. I've never seen. I've never seen night vision <laughs> goggles in, in Walmart. Maybe I I'm mean, looking in the Well, okay, that's a lie. That's a lie. <laughs> Cuz they have they have like um like binoculars that have like night mode for hunting. Uh -huh. Maybe that. Maybe something close to that. Like in the hunting. I'm thinking stuff. like spy goggles that have like, that come down like this. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm thinking about as well. Whenever it said the night vision goggles. So <laughs> once he had those items, he went and rented a red 2005 Jeep Grand Cherokee. And he just drives off into the sunset. Less than a month later, on May 16th, 2005, in Kootenai County, Idaho, an eight-year-old girl named Shasta is called into the living room by her mother. When she gets downstairs, she notices her mom, her older brother Slade, who is 13, and her mom's boyfriend Mark were all bound with zip ties and duct taped on the floor. Ah. And because this story is about a piece of garbage named Joseph, he's behind all of this. And he zip ties Shasta and her other older brother, Dylan, who is nine. He then leads both Shasta and Dylan outside and leaves them by a swing set in their backyard. Joseph goes back inside without the two youngest children. He just leaves them outside. And Shasta recalls hearing Mark screaming and yelling out multiple times. So this is the mom's boyfriend. 
And shortly after, she sees her older brother Slade, who once again is 13, staggering out of the house. So at this time, Slade is breathing, breathing, bleeding profusely from his head, and he is just incoherent. Incoherent. Shasta and Dylan are yelling at him, trying to get his attention, just so he could come and help them out of their ties. And whenever like they got his attention. He just looked at them with a blank face, like he was confused. And later we'll find out why and what happened. But after that, he just collapses on the ground. We later find out that he was beaten multiple times in the head with a claw hammer. Slade's cause of death is blunt force trauma at this time. Shasta and Dylan are then abducted in the red Droop Grand Cherokee that we had mentioned earlier and taken to a remote campsite in the National Forest in Montana. Joseph decides to confide in them as they're traveling or once they get there, telling them that he was driving around looking for kids to kidnap when he saw Shasta outside playing in the sprinkler in her swimsuit. Oh, that's so so Yeah. It's so, don't say that. It's cringy and it just gets worse. Like, I, I have really bad pregnancy nightmares right now. I don't understand. Yeah, you, you haven't had any pregnancy nightmares? No, I have very vivid dreams, but they're not scary usually. Oh my God. (laughs) I've been having horrible pregnancy nightmares, but literally I'm surprised that none of them have been about this since I've been like working on this case for so many days. Mm -hmm. So, um, during this time we find out that, uh, he saw Strasta playing outside in the sprinkler in a swimsuit He was driving through their neighborhood, so he ended up turning around to drive back past her house again just to see her one more time. And he saw her brother Dylan, who was only a year older than her, outside. And that's when he knew that those were his next targets. So Joseph decided that he would case out the house before making his move. And during this time, he said that he watched the house with the night vision goggles that he had gotten from Walmart just so he could learn their routine. So... Now, like, we're going back to May 16th. We're now at May 17th, 2005. So the following day, a neighbor showed up at the growing home to pay Slade because Slade, the 13-year-old, had mowed his yard for him the day before, and the neighbor didn't have enough money to pay him. So he was just like, you know, I'll pay you what I can today, and I'll just bring the rest by tomorrow because their neighbor, Slade, and yeah. Slade was 13. He was like, oh, yeah, no problem. Just right. back tomorrow. So uh, the neighbor notices something suspicious. He told authorities that it seemed like no one was home, but all of the doors to the house were open and all of the vehicles that they had. So I guess Deborah and Mark's vehicles were in the front yard. And mm-hmm. he said that he could hear the, bog, the, bog, the dog barking insistently from inside the house. This made him feel super uncomfortable as it should, like all of his red flags should be going. So he just went ahead and he called 911 and he decided that he would wait outside for them, which good job. Like, yeah, you don't, you don't want to see. Yeah. That. So once the police got there, the bodies of three people were found dead in the home oh and gosh. they had been beaten, tortured and killed. And when someone says beaten, tortured and killed, is there something that you think of, like, just right off the back, bat? Like, anytime anyone says, like, beaten, tortured, or killed, I automatically think BTK'd. But whenever it's, like, just in that order, 
it just it just rings the bell for you. Yes, it not does. A, not a pleasant bell. No, he Dennis, Dennis, Dennis. <laughs> so uh, the bodies that they found would belong to Brenda Growing. Give me two seconds. Growing. That's what you said. Growing the last time. Grony. Grony. Yes. Okay. So their name is Grony. It's G-R-O-E-N-E. Okay. Grony. So bodies would belong to Brenda Grony, 40, who was 40, her son Slade Grony, who is 13, and Brenda's boyfriend, Mark McKenzie, who is 37. Brenda was found in the kitchen. Mark's body was found in the living room. And as we know, Slade's body was found outside because that's the last time his sister had seen him. Mm-hmm. And that's when he had collapsed. So, you know, the police were investigating and shortly they noticed that two people were missing. Brenda's son, Dylan, who was nine. And once again, the daughter, Shasta, who was eight. A lot of this story is going to kind of revolve around Shasta because she is a survivor. Okay. Now, as soon as the police noticed that they were missing, an Amber Alert was immediately issued nationwide. The FBI and other local agencies joined into the search immediately for Sasha, Shasta and Dylan, and a $100,000 reward was immediately offered up for any information leading to the safe recovery for the kids. Quickly, this became the largest criminal investigation in the history of the Kootenai County. One of the leading theories for the family's death was that it was a drug deal gone wrong, just because both Brenda and Mark had marijuana and methamphetamine found in their blood during their autopsies. Oh, yeah. yeah. So uh, now we're going to go ahead and kind of uh, move on to what was happening to the kids during this time. Oh, okay. So, um, During the time that the kids were forced to spend with Joseph, Joseph had two rules, and he told him, you follow my rules or you die. So one being, if they ran away, they would get shot, which, I mean, I feel like that's kind of a given if you're holding them at gunpoint, but maybe there was a rule that needed to be made about it. I mean, they were eight (laughs) and nine. Maybe he was just controlling and just needed, needed a rule for his own sake. Yeah. Well, the second one was that they had to call him daddy. Oh, gross. Yeah. Like, you were allowed to have... I don't know if this was like a kink. Like, you were allowed to have your own kink. Do not force your kink on kids. No, especially kids that are not yours. Yes. And if kids are yours. Yeah, like, do not force your kink on anyone that does not consent to being forced on your kink. Does that... (laughs) English? Sure. Okay. So, yeah, so they were told if they ran away, they would get shot, and they were forced to call him daddy. They were molested, tortured, beaten, basically every bad thing that you could think of that could have been done to these children, it most likely happened. And at some points during the time that he had them, he would threaten them with the same claw hammer that he used on their family, and he would tell them Ah. he was going to kill them. As weird as it is, Every time after he would beat or molest the children, he would plead for their forgiveness. And just like his mom, he would go on a religious rant about God. Hmm. I just, I, I just don't understand what is going on with this man. 
On June 1st, a federal warrant was issued for Joseph's arrest just because he did not show up for his trial um, from the earlier molestation of the young boy in the park. This had happened way back in March. A day later, so this is June 2nd, and this is 48 days after Shasta and Dylan were taken, Joseph and Shasta were spotted outside of a Denny's by two men that were outside smoking. One of the men immediately recognized Shasta from a billboard that he had actually seen earlier that day. Immediately, he went inside the Denny's and he told his girlfriend and several of the employees. And he was not the only one that recognized Shasta. Apparently, a few of the other employees had also noticed her and recognized her. So they had called 911 by that point. Good. Shasta was rescued and immediately taken to the hospital for a few days where it was said that she was in good physical health. So they said physically, aside from the molestation and the assault, nothing was wrong with her. Good. They searched the Jeep and found no signs of Dylan. What they did find were dark colored gloves, the night vision goggles, a video camera, a 12-gauge shotgun, and a red shotgun shell, which as weird as it was, would kind of come back into the story later on. Mm -hmm. With a little help from Shasta, authorities located the campsite where both her and her husband, her and her brother were held captive. Two days after they found the campsite, the officials announced that they had found Dylan's remains off of a remote service road in the Bitterroot Mountains. Joseph claimed that it was an accident, but he said that he was going through some things in the back of his Jeep Jeep in a bin, and the gun had gone off and shot Dylan in the stomach. So that's why that shell casing was there, because the gun had accidentally gone off and shot Dylan in the stomach, who was just tied to a tree a little bit away. Hmm. After Dylan gets shot in the stomach, this piece of shit walks up to him with a shotgun and shoots him at point blank range, like in the face. Oh my God. But as horrible as this is, luckily the shotgun didn't actually fire. Sorry. Uh, Joseph reloaded the shotgun and once again shot him point blank in the face. And this time the shotgun oh. did shoot. What's, I, I didn't put down a word. It but went yeah. off. Yeah, it went off. Like he shoots him in the face and it fires this time. Ugh. And poor Shasta had watched all of this happen. And once again, this piece of shit started crying. And he has the gall, the audacity to tell her that it was an accident and he didn't mean to kill Dylan. No, that that's not an accident. What do you mean it was an accident? Like, you literally sat there and reloaded your gun after a misfire. Mm-hmm. So Dylan's autopsy confirms that the cause of death was a gunshot wound. And um, after Joseph shot Dylan, he um, burned his body. And Shasta said that the fire burned all day and all night. Oh, my gosh. After all of this, Joseph's like little meltdown, his crying fit, whatever, he told Shasta, that they just had to leave this place now because it was too evil. I will literally give you three guesses on the evil part of what that campsite was. And the first two don't even count. <laughs> like, would you like to guess? It's him. Him. Final answer. That That's all you needed. <laughs> literally, it is him. 
So Joseph's in custody at this point, and the first, his first day in court was on July 13th. And at this point, he was charged with three counts of first-degree murder and three counts of first-degree kidnapping. And all of these were in relation to the death of Brenda and Slade and Mark. They did not charge him with abducting Shasta and Dylan just because transporting children across state lines for the purpose of sexual exploitation is a federal offense. So they were planning on prosecuting that federally instead of locally. Okay. That's fine in my book. It's definitely fine in mine as well. Originally, Joseph's trial was set to begin on January 17th in 2006, but it was pushed back to April 4th because his defense attorney asked for more time to help him prepare for trial, which he needed all the help he could get. The trial was once again pushed back to October 26th, and this is when the trial begins. Once the trial started, Joseph immediately started working on a plea deal, and he ended up pleading guilty to all of the offenses. Oh. The, the best part about it, my favorite part about the guilty plea, is that it could not be withdrawn if he wasn't convicted of a similar case within federal court. Um, because if he wouldn't have been convicted of a similar case within federal court, um, they would have been able to ask for the death penalty. Oh. Which, as you know, they're not trying... Well, technically... They would be trying to get him for Dylan's murder, but they were mainly focusing on the fact that he had abducted them and taken them across state line for the purpose of molesting them. Mm -hmm. As a part of the plea deal, he was required to cooperate with the investigators in the murder and abduction portions of the case and in the local courts. So once everything was said and done in the local court, he was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole, all depending on the outcome of the federal cases against him. Because remember, if he's not convicted of it federally, they can bring up the death penalty. Mm -hmm. A few months later, on January 18th in 2007, he was indicted by a Coeur d'Alene federal grand jury on 10 counts of kidnapping, a kidnapping resulting in death, aggravated sexual abuse of a minor, and sexual exploitation of a child resulting in death. And this doesn't include other crimes that were related to the firearm possession, grand theft auto for the Jeep that he never returned, anything like that. It was just for the kids. And at this time over in Riverside County, California, that same day, separate officials announced that he was charged with the murder of Anthony Martinez, who at that time had been confirmed to be killed by Joseph. This was from whenever he was first um, out on parole. They were able to make a positive DNA match to a partial thumb pit that was discovered on duct tape found near Anthony's body. Once again, his defense attorneys requested to push back the trial, and they pushed the trial back to the following year, January 22, 2008. So they just had a day and a few years to kind of get what they could. Mm -hmm. So... Um, this man decided that he would pull a Bundy and on April 14th, 2008, he fired his attorneys and requested that he could represent himself. So stupid. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, I mean, they, they allowed it after his request, he was evaluated and he was deemed competent enough to represent himself, but he did not help himself. 
They rarely do. Yeah. So on August 27th, 2008, the jury only deliberated for a few hours before recommending the death penalty. The judge ended up sentencing Joseph to three death sentences for the kidnapping resulting in death, sexual exploitation of a child resulting in death, use of a firearm and a violent crime resulting in death. All of these charges were directly referencing Dylan. Less than three months later, on November 3rd, he was sentenced to an additional three consecutive life sentences just for abducting uh, Shasta and sexually abusing her and Dylan. Now, in January, that following year, January 24th, 2009, Joseph was extradited to California for five months. And this is all about Anthony. So during this trial, we received a confession that he molested Anthony, as well as killed him by bludgeoning him with a rock. Jeez. Yeah. Um, Later on March 15th, 2011, uh, Duncan pled guilty to Anthony's murder. And less than a month later, on April 5th, he was sentenced to two additional consecutive life sentences. After careful consideration and discussion with Anthony's family, the Martinez family, even though they would have been able to sentence Joseph to the death, or to the death? Sentence Joseph to the death um, for Anthony's murder, um, in addition to all of the counts that he had already received in federal court, the family said that they just wanted closure and they said the federal system will kill him long before the state of California would even consider it. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I wish. Oh. This man spent all but eight years of his adult life behind bar. Wow. <laughs> his siblings claimed that he's not a monster. He's just a broken man that doesn't value human life. No, he's a monster. Yeah. That I feel like that is the understatement of the century. So unfortunately, even though he was on death row, he died on March 28th of this year, 2021. Oh, wow. From brain cancer at the young age of 58. <sighs> yeah. Yikes. Oh. Brain cancer. I mean, that's an ugly one. Just, I mean, cancer, period. Now, even though the story of Joseph is done, There are a few other victims that might have been connected to Joseph. So I just want to quickly go ahead and name them and talk. Yeah, absolutely. On March 31st in 1997 in Oak Harbor, Washington, a seven-year-old named Deborah Palmer was found after she had disappeared on March 27th. I don't have, um, with these, I don't have a lot of case information. I just have their name and date. Um, On July 6th, 1996 in Seattle, Washington, 11-year-old Sammy Joe White and their half-sister Carmen Cabayas, nine, had disappeared and were found on February 10th, 1998, so about a year and a half later in Bothell, Washington. Joseph confessed to their murders, but he was never charged, which is such a shitty thing to do to those families. Yeah. And... Um, This one kind of got me, but I still wanted to include it. On an unspecified date in 2005, he possibly stalked an unnamed girl who was 10 years old and her sister who was also unnamed and her sister's friend who was also unnamed. Mm. So this, this man was just, 
human trash. It's just puke. We do not value human life, especially children. And earlier it hit, I had mentioned like he had stolen his girlfriend's car. Mm-hmm. A whole, like a ton of his victims, all but one that he molested and raped and sodomized, all but one were boys. Yeah. The rest, like little boys. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I was a little shocked to find out that he had a girlfriend. Yeah. So let's let's talk about your case so I can stop thinking. Okay. <laughs> Please. Well, I am going to take us to Rexburg, Idaho. And it is on the... Yeah, Rexy. <laughs> um, it is on the southeastern side of the state. It was actually originally settled by fur trappers in the 1800s. Like most of Idaho, Rexburg is known for growing amazing potatoes. Yes. And <laughs> part of the reason for Rexburg for Rexburg's amazing potatoes is because the city actually sits on top of a volcano. And so the volcano has not been active for thousands of years, but whenever it was active, it left behind volcanic ash. So that's super enriching to the soil. Oh my gosh, that is so stinking cool. That's I know. Fact about Idaho. <laughs> I know. Um, the current population of Rexburg is 39,409. And the population in or around 2004 was 17,257. Oh, wow. That's a jump. Yeah. Yeah. Almost double. Um, And 97% of that population is Mormon. Oh, okay. Um, So we are going to talk about, like I said, in 2004, we're going to talk about one of these Mormon families, the Konecos. Koneki and Kiyoe Koneko. Oh. I couldn't find a true confirmation on this, but both Koneko and Sakota, which was Kiyoe's maiden name, are both Japanese surnames. So I'm going to say that they were of Japanese descent, even though they actually went by the names David and Lorraine and both were from Idaho. But like I said, I couldn't find anything to confirm, but Kaneko and Sakota are both Japanese surnames. So one can assume. Yeah. I actually had a friend growing up who is, I mean, she was Chinese, not Japanese, but she had her American name, which was Angela. Yeah. We had, um, where I grew up, we have a really large Hmong population. Um, so Hmongs come from like Laos, Thailand area. And um, they had kind of the same thing. Like a lot of them would have, a lot of them went by their Hmong names, but the ones who didn't had Hmong names. And then they also had um, American names that they would go by. Yeah. Um, the couple, David and Lorraine, had a daughter named Laura. And David and Lorraine were married in the Church of Latter-day Saints in August of 1969. Lorraine taught at a school in Spanish Fork, Utah, and David was actually pursuing his master's degree in zoology at BYO. Oh. I know. (laughs) Um, The whole Koneko family was very involved in their church and schools in the area. Laura was always, like, top of her class, graduated college with a 4.0, meant to do wonderful things. She was um, pre-med at one point, like, Wow. Very, very intelligent. Yeah. Lorraine served on the Stake Relief Society board at Rick's College, which is located there in Rexburg. So very, like I said, very, very involved. I cannot emphasize that enough. Yeah. Now in her late 50s, 
serving on that Relief Society board was Lorraine's way of staying active and present in her community and her faith. So it was like the the Mormon community, the Church of Latter-day Saints, believes in service. So a lot of them will go on service missions as a part of like their calling. Um, and for her at this stage in her life, she believed that that's what that was for her. Laura was not much different than her mother. Um, very, very heavily involved on top of her intelligence. Um, she was also very involved in her church and the community. In 1991, the families noticed that all that kind of started to begin to change. Supposedly, there were, I couldn't find a whole lot on this, but supposedly there were rifts within the family around this time, which kind of made the Kanekos like, not kind of distance themselves from family. Um, at the same time, there were also rifts within their circles in the community. So they pulled away from family and friends all around 1991. I couldn't find, like I said, a whole lot of information on exactly what these rifts were about, but it seemed like it was the reason for Lorraine and Laura to stop everything they were doing. Lorraine immediately stopped volunteering at the church. Laura quit pursuing her um, education, like just cut it cold turkey. Mm -hmm. The two and David moved to a trailer home where they rarely left. So they lived in this trailer home out on the outskirts of Rexburg, um, just the three of them. Like I said, Lorraine and Laura abruptly stopped attending all of their different social groups, um, church, everything. They would go months without being seen by anyone even like around town, like oh. just literally never left their house. The only one who was still seen and heard from on a regular basis was Lorraine's husband, David. Lorraine's side of the family began reaching out often to try to communicate and mend those broken relationships, but their calls usually went unanswered and would never be returned. Or if they were answered, um, it would, it was by David and he would normally just tell them, don't bother us. We're busy. Uh, you guys don't leave the house or do anything. How can you be busy? Yeah. Yep. Um, so this eventually led to Lorraine's family repeated call, repeatedly calling police in the area to perform welfare checks. Because the requests started coming so often, the police department in Rexburg actually made it a regular practice for them to check on the Kanikos. Oh, wow. um, and that started around 1997. In 2001, these welfare checks were taken over by a new sheriff, Sheriff Roy Klingler, after he took office. Sheriff Klingler's very first encounter with the Kaneko family was only a few months after he took office. And when he arrived to the double wide trailer, no one answered the door after he repeat like, he stood there and knocked repeatedly. No, like very clearly they were home and nobody answered the door. He eventually had to threaten to return with a search warrant, which made the two women come forward. And they both insisted that they were completely fine and asked him to leave. Oh my gosh. I'm like, my heart is pounding right now. Like what is happening to these four women? He would go on record saying there's nothing against the law. If people want to go into, into seclusion and he's right. Like, there are no rules against living alone in a trailer in the woods, but it raised so many red flags because that was not normal for these two. No, they were so involved. Yes. This welfare check was performed on April 13th, 2001, and would be the last one Lorraine and Laura were seen alive. 
The continued attempt for welfare checks on Lorraine and Laura would continue to go unanswered or intercepted by David for years before the family finally started to push for police to enter the home so the women could be taken to psychologists to have their mental states assessed. Is that something Af- that they would actually do? Mm-hmm. If there's enough cause for concern, they can mm-hmm. they can have a warrant. After three years of attempts, on June 19, 2004, a search warrant was finally executed for the Koneko home. The house was in complete disarray. The reports described it as extreme clutter with stacks of collected trash and objects restricting access to narrow pathways. So basically a hoarding situation. Uh, yeah. Um, there were plastic coverings on all of the windows. And the house reeked of chemical smell that was mixed with the smell of hundreds of air fresheners that were being used in a, in an attempt to cover the stink. Oh it was gosh. filth everywhere. Oh, gosh. I'm just imagining that. I know. Police and crime scene investigators had to wear protective suits and respirators just to deal with the odor of the home. Yeah. During the search, the bodies of Laura and Lorraine Koneko were found lying side by side on a bed covered with blankets as if they were sleeping. What? So all of this chemical and <laughs> air freshener smell is also mixed with decomposing body. Oh my gosh. I have I have never smelled a decomposing body, but I'm pretty sure I have. Like So I have smelled like decomposing animals and it is not pleasant. No, and I've heard like it has like some type of sickly sweet smell to it yeah. included. Uh, not only were both of these women deceased, but the level of decomposition for each of them was shocking. Oh. One of the bodies was almost completely skeletonized. The other mm-hmm. was still badly decomposed, but appeared to have been there for a slightly shorter amount of time because it was not quite to the same level as decomp as the other. So not quite a skeleton, but nearly so what did he do did he kill one and then just like kill the other later on and then just stuff her in the bed (laughs) i'm gonna tell you (laughs) oh okay i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) lieutenant david stoddard a detective at the time stated it looked like a mummy and said he remembered thinking they had to have died just after the last welfare check three years prior where they were seen alive in 2001 oh my gosh yeah and now we're in 2004 Just as a reminder. (laughs) The bodies were taken in for autopsies and police had to sift through and bag literally every piece of trash from the home had to be cataloged into evidence. I bet that took months. It took, it took them nine days. What? So it, well, that's, I feel like that's a long time. Normally a crime scene, like you're in and out, you get your evidence, you catalog it, but it took them nine days to catalog everything in the house. This is more than just one person working, of course. And they found empty cereal boxes labeled with the day that they had been eaten. Trash bags full of used toilet paper. Lists of each time the furnace had been turned on or off. And what had been played on NPR on what date. What the heck? (laughs) They also found food logs and diaries that both women had recorded in religiously for nearly 10 years. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So, David was taken into custody. Good. As he should Um, be. Yes. He was under bond, um, but not for murder. 
Um, he was actually taken into custody as a key witness to their deaths because at this point they had no idea what happened. And there was so much evidence that none of it was able to be connected to one person. Like there was almost too much evidence that it overwhelmed the crime scene. Yeah. So there was no way to piece together what any of it meant. Um, finding cause, manner, and time of death became its own problem for Idaho police because they had never dealt with anything like this before. So the staff they had available had no experience or knowledge on how to even take the next step forward. They had no idea how to proceed. The first pathologist who examined the bodies came up with little to no information about their deaths. Without any information, there was no way for police to move forward with the investigation. So it dragged on for months. The sheriff at the time, Sheriff Klingler, said he was worried he would have to get counseling for their detectives just because of the amount of time and energy that they were having to put into this case without it going anywhere. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know that was a thing. That's another thing that I, I know. didn't know was a thing. <laughs> I know. Um, because of how bizarre it was when this case had been revealed, it caught attention all over the United States, of course. Um, eventually, Sheriff Klingler was able to convince a forensic anthropologist with the United States military named Dr. William Rodriguez to come to Idaho to perform a second set of autopsies on Laura and Lorraine. And I, this was interesting to me because I had up until recent events, I had not heard of forensic anthropologists and let alone them being called in to do autopsies. But this is actually the same thing that they did um, with Brian Laundrie's remains because oh. they were so badly decomposed. A regular autopsy couldn't, couldn't tell us what happened. So they called in forensic anthropologists because I guess they have a different set of skills or a different set of yes. trainings. Have yeah. Have you ever watched the TV show Bones? Yes. That's she's a forensic anthropologist. Okay, I guess I didn't know that. Like, yeah. it just never, never recognized me. But I, I was like, what are the odds? Like, <laughs> they just did that with Brian Laundry. Yeah. Um, Dr. Rodriguez was known to be one of the best um, forensic anthropologists um, in this area of expertise, and was the one to perform autopsies on the sons of Saddam Hussein after their deaths. Oh wow! Yeah, big name. Even being one of the best. The autopsies of Laura, Laura, Laura and Lorraine were still very challenging. He could tell that the women had obviously died at separate times and was able to tell, which I thought was really, really cool. Um, not that they're dead, but this way, I guess the, the fact that you can find this on a body, I feel like is pretty cool. Um, he could tell that Laura had likely died during warmer months and Lorraine had likely died during colder months. So there must be something about the way a body decomposes during heat. Well, I know it. I'm, I know heat and cold can, or hot and cold can affect decomp, but mm -hmm. at this level of decomp, it's interesting that you can still see that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, he also determined that neither body showed any signs of beating, stabbing, shooting, or poisoning. So we pretty much ruled everything out right there. <laughs> then how did they die? He believed both deaths were the result of either starvation or sickness or both. Were we able to take a look at their food logs to see if it was like systematic starvation? I'm going to tell you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, let's see. You're just on my, on my brainwaves. <laughs> um, police were able to take this information and move forward with their questioning of David in an attempt to understand what had happened to his family. 
he wouldn't talk. He wouldn't say anything. Yeah, because he sounds like garbage, like his house. Mm -hmm. They sent all the journals they found in the home to a handwriting expert and were able to figure out which journals belonged to Lorraine and which ones were Laura's. Um, That was important because obviously the information in each journal was very different. Yes. Um, In one of Lorraine's diaries, she called David a murderer and said he moved through the house like a vapor. Oh, man. I know. Scary. I know. I, I, that just like it gives me the heaves. Yeah. Like, <laughs> gives me the jeans. And, <laughs> and Laura's journals revealed something just as dark, but not about her father. They immediately sent all of these um, journals to Dr. Anne Marie Omelia to analyze. She specialized in treatments for patients with combinations of mental and physical illnesses. So this was her expertise. Um, after reading, Amelia determined that Laura had been suffering from a fairly severe mental illness that first showed up, at least through her writing, in her early teens. Um, she also concluded that both women were malnourished. Um, she, she knew this because many of their journal entries revolved around food and Amelia said that this is a very common thing to see in people who are suffering from starvation or malnourishment. Um, especially like you'll see it with people that are going through eating disorders, anorexia, they will fixate on talking about food because they don't receive it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Amelia believed that Laura had bipolar type schizoaffective disorder, which is a completely treatable disorder with proper care but without proper care would have significantly hindered her ability to function day to day and very much altered her view of reality. In one of, in one of Laura's journals from 1994. So nearly 10 years before her body was found, she wrote that she had had a revelation that she was supposed to marry an apostle from the church who was currently on a missions trip. Oh my gosh. That is heart-wrenching yes in order to bring that revelation into fruition she believed that she could only eat certain foods and focus significantly on isolating herself in order to cleanse her soul in preparation for this marriage omelia saw no signs of mental illness from lorraine's entries at first as time went on reading the journals um i mean it kind of gave you a play-by-play of what was going on in her brain right yeah um, so as time went on, she began to show Laura, Lorraine start began to show similarities to Laura, and Amelia would put in her analysis that, quote, because of their very close relationship and social isolation, she began to believe the delusions of her daughter. Oh my gosh! Throughout almost ten full years of isolation, the women lived off of whatever stockpile was of food that had been in the home, and by the time of their deaths was literally just jars of pickles. Like, there, all of the food was gone except pickles. What do they have against pickles? <laughs> I don't know. I love pickles. Me too. Oh, um, by the way, um, dill pickles with Catalina dressing is so freaking good. Really? Okay. Just in case you have a pregnancy craving for pickles, just mix the two. I'll test Please it out. Let me know how you love it. Meanwhile, David continued going to work, ate out regularly, and went to the doctor for all kinds of things, including pink eye and even knee surgery. 
So this man, while his wife and daughter literally were wasting away at home, went and had a whole ass knee surgery. What? That has like, like recovery time, physical therapy. <laughs> he was seeing many doctors for this. Who drove him home after that surgery? I have no idea. What the hell? Like, how did this not raise so many red flags? Well, well nobody did, knew. Nobody could. Yeah. I mean, it was just too late when it did raise red, red yeah. flags. Investigators knew David played an important role in all of this, but had no idea, like, to what extent. Before the warrant had been executed and the bodies had been found, police actually called David and gave him a heads up that he, that they had be coming by. And not because they're involved in any way, but because he was, he was in the community. People knew who he was. He wasn't, he wasn't that weird. You know, he, yeah. he was around his wife and daughter had not been around. So it was more of a courtesy, I think. Yeah. Um, but when David answered the call and they told him that they were going to be serving him this warrant for the house, he asked them to wait for him to get home because he said that Lorraine and Laura wouldn't answer the door unless he was home. Did he have schizophrenic delusions? Becca <laughs> refused to talk for weeks and until finally his own lawyer asked to bring in a psychologist. Not only did they bring in a psychologist, but they had what's called a magistrate hearing, um, oh. which is apparently very rare, but it actually waives all doctor-client privilege and forces the witness to talk to the psychologist. Oh, man. That's yes. cool. And it's all on record, and the hearing is closed to the public. So, I mean, it's protected. It's on record, but it's not. Right. Yeah. Right. It's on record to those that it's important to, but not everyone else. Yeah. Um, this hearing was absolutely detrimental in the case because it was the only way that they were able to connect the dots between two dead bodies, a shit ton of evidence, and a few expert opinions. I mean, outside of that, like I said, there was just so much evidence that they didn't know what was evidence and what wasn't. Mm -hmm. And David wasn't talking, so they, <laughs> they didn't know what happened. Um, David revealed that Laura had died around June of 2001, just a few months after that last welfare check in April of 01. Oh and Lorraine died in February of 2003, both of which are right on track with Dr. Rodriguez had said in his findings about um, Laura dying in the warmer months and Lorraine dying in the colder months. David also told police that he believed they had starved to death. And even though he found both of them after they had died, he didn't call police because he believed it would interfere with their plan. With their plan? Yes, their plan of um, cleansing Maybe. their souls for Laura's marriage. Oh, my gosh. So he in was the end, in on the delusion as well. To an extent. Um, in the end, they did not think any of the evidence was supportive of murder but did feel that David was partly responsible for Lorraine and Laura's deaths because he knew they were sick. He didn't get them help. He didn't mm -hmm. report their deaths and he lived in the home with their decomposing corpses for years, for years. while winning, while going about his regular lives. Life. Wow. Like he lived in that house with Laura's dead body, his daughter's dead body for three years and, and his, his wife for one. Yeah. Oh, how how long did this have gone on? Like, it's that, that's exactly it. Like, had they not had family who were concerned about them, 
he would have just gone about his life. I can tell you exactly what would have happened. Skeletons. Um, he, whenever it was time for him to die, like he decided that he would die, he was just gonna crawl right up in that bed with them, and they Probably all would have so. been found together. April tenth, wow. two thousand six. David Kaneko was charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter, two counts of abandonment of a vulnerable adult, and one count of desertion. Good. In June, the prosecution agreed to a plea deal. So David would plead guilty and pay $40,000 to help cover what it costs to bring in all of the, the experts and the specialists for the investigation. Um, because Idaho didn't have that, you know, I, th- this was big. <laughs> Yes. Um, and then in exchange, they would drop all charges except the two counts of involuntary manslaughter. Um, there was a couple of reports I read that were from the um, from the um, prosecution who said that they believed manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, encompassed all of everything that had happened, everything he had been responsible for. And I agree. I mean it's very clear that he had some mental illness going on as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And although I, I feel like he probably had a little bit more of a role than he lets on. um, Mm I, I don't, I I don't think he murdered them. I don't think he strangled them. I don't think he poisoned them in any way. I mean, I think they died from starvation. Yeah. Um, That's what it sounds like. Yeah. He was sentenced to four to 10 years in prison with a mandatory six month mental health program. After the six month program, David was released on probation, which ended in 2013. And he actually um, pushed a motion to have the involuntary manslaughter charges wiped from his record. But because his probation ended in 2013, I guess there's a time frame that you have to wait after probation in order to have that kind of motion. Uh Um, So he wouldn't be eligible to even put the motion into effect until 2018 as a minimum. Mm. Um, David died before that could happen in June of 2016 at the age of 76, he died of cancer. Oh yes. And that (laughs) um, is the awful story of Lorraine and Laura Kaneko. Um, they very clearly needed divine intervention, but not so much in the way that Laura was cleansing her soul for a husband. Um, oh more so in the way that her, the husband and father needed to step in Absolutely. Um, and take care of them and provide them the help that they needed. But yeah, like I said, this is a little bit, it's a little bit different than a typical true crime, but I mean... But, yeah. I mean, it was good hearing that after hearing mine. Yeah. Well, and it goes to show, like, I think it's important, too. Like, mental health is a very serious thing. And we've covered it in other cases, too, where so many times somebody could have intervened and do- doesn't. Or they didn't have the help they needed. And in this instance, they didn't have someone who wasn't mentally ill to say, hey, y'all need help. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> For, as far as David knew, they were on a path to divine intervention where Laura was going to marry this man of the church who may or may not have existed. And they did need to clean their soul, cleanse their soul. Um, mm-hmm. In his mind, that made sense. And but I just feel like after a certain point of your child starving themselves, you need to be more involved. You need to try to help them. Yeah. At this point, I don't know that I put it in there. Um, 
Laura was 33 when she died and Lorraine was, I believe, 58. So, I mean, still adults, but still. still, Like my son, I almost said his name. My son will still be my son when he's 30. Like I'm so, if he lives with me, yeah. which I mean, hopefully he'll be married and have kids by the time that he's 30. But if he lives with me, like I would make sure that he's taking care of it. If I notice him like starting to drop weight like that. Right. You speak up. Yes. Yeah. So just, just crazy. Speak up for your people, people. Yes, please. Speaking of speaking up for our people, I'm going to speak up for one of Idaho's missing, missing people. Okay. Um, um, Katie Lynn Cohen's was last seen on December 10th, 2021. So not that long ago. She's 14. Um, she is white and does have Hispanic um, ethnicity. She's five foot two, 130 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes. And she was last seen wearing a dark blue and black hoodie, a red t-shirt, sweatpants, and black Nike shoes. Um, like I said, she hasn't been missing for that long. So if you see her, please, please, please report any any sightings of her, any information you might have concerning her disappearance. Um, and those can go to the Pocatello Police Department at 208-234-6100. No, it's Katie Lynn Cohen's is her name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's rough. And this doesn't have to be in, but I was watching, I was watching the Morbid podcast today and they actually covered an Idaho boy who's, who's been missing since June, July. Really? Yeah. So do you think we could touch on that too? Or yeah, just what's his it? name? Yeah. Um, his name is Michael Joseph Vaughn. So um, he was abducted from his neighborhood, which is a scary thing. And so, or he went missing from his neighborhood and his parents and authorities are assuming that he was abducted at this point. Um, You would almost have to have to believe that because at least my neighborhood, we only have one entrance, one exit. So yeah, we have hard to, um, he has been missing since July and everyone thinks that he was likely abducted. They're asking for any information that could lead to his whereabouts. Um, there has been no headway made in the search for him, despite the exhaustive searches that they've had within a two-mile radius of the family home over the past few months. They've done drone searches, dog searches, helicopters. Um, neighbors have gone out searching. So he was last seen outside near his home in Fruitland, on July 27th, wearing a light blue Minecraft t-shirt, dark blue boxer briefs, and flip-flops. So he wasn't even ready for the day. No. How old did you say he was? Uh, five, I believe. Oh. Yeah, five-year-old boy. Um, he is about three feet, six inches, so about one meter tall, around 50 pounds, which is 23 kilograms with blonde hair and blue eyes, and he responds to the nickname Monkey. Oh, well, he's just five. He's just a baby. He's just a baby. So a city reward fund of $50,100 is available for anyone who provides information that leads to Michael's safe return, and the funds will be available until March 31st, 2022. 
Authorities are asking for anyone with any information to call the Fruitland Police Dispatch at 208-642-6006. Or you can email findmichael at fruitland.org. Get his name out there, people. Yes, please. Let's let's find all of these missing peoples. The silver alerts, the amber alerts, the... The gold alerts. The, yeah. We've had those they, recently. I was like, is it golden? Is it gold? What's the what's the gold name? So, yes, yeah. yes. If you're more comfortable um, sending it to us and we can put it out there for you, if you don't want your name out there, that's just fine. You can send it to us on Patreon at Killer Country Podcast. You can also send it to us through Messenger on Facebook. You'll find us at facebook.com backslash Killer Country Podcast. We are also on Instagram. There's Instagram Messenger. And that is at Killer Country Podcast. Or you can go ahead and send us an email. It literally shows up directly on my phone as soon as we get an email. Our email is killercountrypodcast at gmail.com. Yes. So send it our way. We'll we'll get the names out there. You can send us um, campfire stories. You can send us case recommendations. Anything. We'll go ahead and look into whatever you need us to. Yes, yes. And next week we are on our way to Illinois. So along for the ride. <laughs> yes. I have family that lives in, well, they lived in Illinois. Um, they lived in a small town called Sandwich. Oh, a sandwich. Did anything crazy happen in Sandwich? I mean, no, but they do have the Sandwich police. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening.